Louis-William de Sange was an English artist of French aristocratic background, best known as the creator of the Victoria Cross Gallery, which is a series of 50 oil paintings executed between 1859 and 1862. Sorry, yeah, bit bleached out. And 1862. Now, the, the Victoria Cross uh, Award had been introduced in 1856. Fine, yeah had been introduced in 1856 during the Crimean War to, to honour acts of valour by uh, ordinary soldiers and junior officers. And de Sange's paintings were based on the particular action that led to the award. So here we have Sergeant O'Connor of the 23rd Royal Welsh Fusiliers at the Battle of Alma, 20th of September, 1854. The series was exhibited at the Crystal Palace in the 1860s and 1870s, and as a result, was probably one of the most familiar representations of contemporary war to mid-Victorians, especially in London. But the images also circulated more widely in photographs, prints, and also appeared as illustrations in Samuel Beaton's book, Our Heroes of the Victoria Cross, which was a book aimed at the boys of the empire. Although um, de Sange's work was very popular at the time, it's generally been ignored by historians and art historians because it sits somewhat uneasily between kind of high academic art on the one hand and then kind of popular culture on the other. And leading one critic, uh, Hitchberger, to describe this as uh, occupying an interesting and unexplored region or as works of art which entertained and informed a middle-class audience eager for affirmation of its self-confident militarism and patriotism. Now, beyond the 50 Victoria Cross paintings, de Sange produced others, also of figures who were awarded the VC, one of which is this from 1866, the capture of Tubab Colon, Gambia, uh, which is held now at the Penley House Gallery and Museum in Penzance. And it depicts Private Samuel Hodge over there of the 4th West India Regiment, uh, who was awarded uh, the Victoria Cross for his outstanding bravery during a, 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 a battle in, in um, an engagement in, Gam in the Gambia where he um, uh, was involved in breaking open a, a stockade uh, and uh, allowing other troops in. And despite being wounded, he then continued to assist his commanding officer, the figure standing above him, by passing him the rifles of his fallen comrades whilst Colonel George Darcy, this figure standing, held off the enemy and you can see the kind of support troops coming up into the breach. Uh, at the age of only 28, uh, Hodge, uh, then who had been born in Tortola, died in Belize of, as a result of the wounds that he uh, had suffered in this engagement. And he was the first non-white soldier to be awarded a Victoria Cross. Not the first non-white military personnel as a sailor, but he's the first non-white soldier awarded the VC. Now, I have a lot more to do with both this painting and also how it relates to de Sange's other Victoria Cross works, but I want to start by offering some initial observations. And what strikes me particularly is uh, the portrayal of Hodge, and especially in contrast with some of other, uh, de Sange's other works. This, for example, is a, a watercolour which de Sange hadn't actually worked up into a finished uh, oil painting, uh, of Private John Sims of the 34th Regiment winning the VC at Sevastopol in June 1854 and Sims is front, uh, right in the centre uh, moving forward uh, to repel uh, a, Russian, a Russian sally. Hodge in contrast is somewhat marginalised 
Note, for example, that although he holds an axe in his left hand, uh, which was the kind of key role he'd played, uh, we don't actually see uh, him uh, breaching the stockade. Instead, de Sange focuses on Darcy's role in maintaining the breach uh, while the troops uh, come up, and this is a task with which Hodge only assists. And the most dramatic action that's actually portrayed in the painting itself is the death of, you can't quite see it in this projection, of the marabout chief who's just been shot by Darcy, who then calmly passes the rifle uh, back to Hodge. And indeed, this exchange between Darcy and the marabout chief, uh, it strikes me as actually at the centre of the painting and the, the kind of contrast. We've got Darcy bathed in light, uh, the marabout chief in dark. Uh, we've got the sort of self-control of and the assurance of Darcy versus the kind of the pain of death of the marabout chief. And obviously, they're also their respective leaders of their, uh, the two uh, enemies, two forces. Hodge and the breach he has made, which is here, despite being in the middle and the front, are rather marginalised. And this is reinforced by the painting's inscription, which is probably by, by Dessange as well, which rapidly passes over Hodge and focuses instead on Darcy, and actually goes on to regret that Darcy couldn't be awarded the Victoria Cross, and that was because commanding officers, you couldn't receive, he was too high a rank to be eligible for the VC. And it's worth noting, this perhaps will not come as a surprise, that this painting was owned by uh, George Darcy, and indeed may have been deliberately commissioned for him, uh, by him, uh, by him uh, from, from de Sange. This was something that de Sange often did, he would paint for would-be patrons, hoping they would then purchase his work. And we get the sense very much that Hodge is rather uh, incidental to the whole thing, even though it's supposedly about his valour. At some point, is that, does that work? Uh, sorry, it's, it's as it's going to get dark, I'm going to struggle here. Oh, it's okay. I'm sure we can manage because otherwise you are going to be washed out. It's just actually there's a there's a power thing over here. I'm just going, as it gets darker and darker. I'm going to struggle. Right. Right. Perfect. Okay. Right. So as. Okay? Is that, is that right for me? Okay. Will that be better down? Yeah. Is that okay? Yeah. And if, if I don't like your questions, I'll point you <laughs> Okay, so as, as Gad suggested, this paper is part of a, water, a wider project called Africa's Sons Under Arms. Melissa Bennett, my students, a doctoral student of mine, is also part of that team. And this project focuses on Britain's West India regiments in the long 19th century. <coughs> for those of you who don't know, these were military units raised by the British, originally from amongst enslaved men of African descent. They served initially in the Caribbean and later uh, in the Caribbean and in West Africa. And I'm particularly interested in the textual and visual representation of the regiments in Britain and the Empire to, in order to examine changing ideas about race, masculinity, militarism and imperialism. And as a step towards that, this paper is concerned with the image of the rank and file of the regiments, but not in the period from which the de Sange painting dates, but rather from the late 18th and early 19th century, in other words, as the image, I'm going to argue, takes shape, and indeed, as it was contested. This is the period from when the regiments were established formally, all the way up to the period around emancipation, formal emancipation in the British West Indies. 
And in this context, the de Sange painting of 1866 is rather unusual. It's the only oil painting featuring a West India regiment rank and file that I've come across. But in another sense, the de Sange painting is actually quite typical because most of the visual representations of the regiment come from the second half of the 19th century, so it's beyond the period I'm focusing on, and particularly the final quarter of the 19th century. In contrast, there are re relatively few visual representations from the earlier period, and I will talk about some in a moment, and the image instead was primarily formed through textual accounts. Now, my wider argument is that representations and counter-representations of the regiment, particularly produced by, on the one hand, its officers, and on the other hand, West Indian colonists, were part of a broader struggle over the representation of the African subject, which is what uh, Catherine Hall, here of UCL, famously dubbed the War of Representation. And I suppose if I'd been clever, I could have said, we have, I'm looking at a representation of war at the same time. I haven't thought of that. So we're, we're quite familiar thinking about how the black subject, in inverted commas, was fought over by supporters and opponents of slavery. Well, I want to argue that the soldier plays a similar role and is kind of part of a broader set of contests. Okay, so before turning to the war of representation over the West India Regiment, I want to just briefly talk about the historical context for the arming of uh, enslaved people, which uh, I think is important. As the essays in Christopher Brown and Philip Morgan's Arming Slaves demonstrate, there has been a very long history of military slavery across a range of geographical locales. In the Caribbean, Spain had used armed slaves from its earliest conquests, whereas the English, the French and other European powers employed them in, from the 17th century. There was great ambivalence about the arming of enslaved people amongst uh, white colonists in the region. While evidence showed they could be both trustworthy and effective, this sat uneasily with hardening racial ideologies as well as the economic interests of slaveholders. And we see this kind of ambivalence particularly in the Seven Years' War when British colonists were actually more concerned about enslaved rebellions than attacks by the French, especially in the Caribbean theatre. But despite this, there was a great deal of ad hoc arming of enslaved people in response to particular local emergencies and crises. And indeed, the greater scale of conflict during the Seven Years' War necessitated a greater involvement of enslaved and free people of African descent. And this, in turn, set precedence for the American Revolutionary War. And overall, Philip Morgan and Andrew O'Shaughnessy note that, quote, to stress how much of a radical departure arming slaves was from so-called civilised practice, how exceptional a measure it was, does not seem to fully describe the reality. Arming slaves was a dangerous expedient, but one resorted to frequently. Yet while the use of men of African descent in the Caribbean, both free and enslaved, in military and pioneering roles was well established by the late 18th century, partly due to the expansion of slavery and the relative demographic decline of European descent populations, these enrolments tended to be for fixed and limited periods. In contrast, the establishment of the West India Regiment as permanent military units whose soldiers were uniformed, armed and trained along European lines, represented what one, what one historian calls an unprecedented step in the approach to military slavery in the Caribbean, and one that was bitterly contested. 
Authorisation of the 1st West India Regiments by the British in April 1795 was spurred by news of setbacks across the Caribbean theatre of war. The British suffered terrible losses in Sandaman, which they had invaded, were forced out of Guadeloupe, abandoned St Lucia and faced serious revolts in Grenada and St Vincent, as well as the Trelawney Town Maroons uprising in Jamaica. And together these constituted one of the most serious imperial crises ever and occurred at a time when forces arriving from Europe were being decimated by disease. Although there were compelling reasons to employ enslaved soldiers, and in total 12 regiments were raised in due course, this also raised fundamental problems for the plantation system. It was a dangerous acknowledgement of just how short of white manpower there was, nor did it sit easily with white racist stereotypes of people of African descent, as either dishonourable cravens, and therefore unworthy and incapable of being soldiers in the first place, or savage, and therefore uncontrollable. And of course, these are stereotypes that would come to the fore in the efforts to defend slavery in this period. Indeed, the existence of soldiers who were originally enslaved might even serve to challenge these stereotypes, thus undermining the racial myths that justified slavery. Hence, while the employment of permanent military units of arm, as armed slaves might have satisfied a British military need, it was at odds with the dominant ideological features of white Creole culture. And this is the context for this, this kind of war of representation, this representation, counter-representation of the figure of the West India Regiment soldier. From the emergence of discussions around establishing the regiments in the 1790s, there was opposition across the British West Indian colonies, across the legislatures of the, of the, of the colonies, as well as amongst the West India Committee in Britain, and this reflected wider popular disquiet. As planter and colonial go governor William Young put it, there is something in the temper and constitution of these Negro regiments which has ever been a matter of distrust and jealousy to the colonists. Similarly, writing of opposition in Barbados from the Assembly, local historian John Poyer noted that, quote, notwithstanding this just representation of the evils with which this scheme is evidently pregnant, in which all the colonies concurred, the imperial government persisted in this dangerous design. And without pretending to the gift of prophecy, it may be hazarded as no improbable conjecture that at no distant period of time these faithless blacks in conjunction with the national foe, the French, or colonial traitors will employ the arms unwisely put in their hands in murdering their officers, subverting the power of Britain in this hemisphere, and erecting the savage despotism of Africa on the ruins of English liberty. Those of you who know John Poyer, he's never a man for an understatement. But in some way very typical. Similarly, the Antiguan Assembly was unanimously opposed to a plan to quarter the 8th West India Regiment there on account that it was composed, quote, almost entirely of Africans totally unacquainted with our language and customs, without the least idea of religion and in the most barbarous and uncivilised state. And they also, and surprisingly something I've talked about elsewhere, expressed fears about what effect the presence of black soldiers would have on the enslaved population. And there's a wonderful phrase here. They, wrote of, they write of the revolution that will take place in the slave's mind on encountering the West India Regiment soldiers. A wonderful phrase. Such opposition was, unsurprisingly, strongest amid the revolutionary ferments of the 1790s and early 1800s. Precisely the time when they were needed most was also the time when the colonists were generally panicky about everything that smacked of uh, revolution. 
Indeed, in their attacks on the West India regiments, colonists portrayed them as potential brigands. And again, those of you who know this period, the British frequently talk about brigands. Anyone as a brigand or a banditi or something, who has said anyone who was uh, fighting against them, maroons, uh, um, self-liberating enslaved Africans, uh, Haitian rebels, everyone's a brigand. And they very much, the colonists very much see the West India regiments as potential brigands. <coughs> Not surprisingly, the Haitian Revolution loomed large in the mind of colonists. With revolutionary ideas spreading across the region, as they saw it, the deliberate policy of arming some enslaved people was seen as an insanity, particularly if these people were then sent to serve in revolutionary hotspots where they would only be infected with revolution. Further, the Jamaican Assembly for example, warned that the idea of sending Negroes from Jamaica to San Domingo to return with French opinions conveys a horror to our minds. And indeed, there was some base for their concern because the British deliberately sought to recruit French-speaking enslaved people from amongst pro-monarchist slaveholders into their regiments as they were after they invaded San Domingo. Events in Sandaman also served to reinforce notions of the natural violence and savagery of enslaved men of African descent. Um, so this is a, um, a caricature from the early uh, 18th century, and it's intended to make a broader point about you know, French villainy and English humanity. But this idea of the British, this is after the British have been forced out of Sandaman, and the, the French the Haitians are now fighting the French, the, the, and Napoleon's French have invaded the British staying the hand of the Haitian soldier who would otherwise slay, quite rightly, uh, his uh, French foe. Similarly, another observer put it that the arming and training of so many of these men after the mournful scenes and horrid barbarities we have witnessed in San Domingo is surely not prudent to the dictates of wisdom. Now, of course, these ideas that these soldiers were untrustworthy, that they were somehow naturally savage, that it was an insanity to arm them and so on, were only reinforced uh, uh, when there were mutinies among the soldiers, and there were some. In 1802, there's a mutiny amongst the 8th West India Regiment in Dominica, the so-called Black Man Mutiny. And in, the second, and in uh, Jamaica in 1808, there is a mutiny amongst the 2nd West India Regiment. Now... These were relatively minor events from a military and indeed a social perspective, but were blown out of all proportion and read as evidence of the general character of black soldiers. Of the 1802 mutiny, it was asserted that, quote, the late ferocity of one of the Negro corps in Dominica, where they murdered their officers, is a striking uh, sign of their future conduct. And in the aftermath of these mutinies, after the the trials and executions, the British imperial government sort of worked hard to try and um, reassure the colonists. They broke up regiments, they uh, scattered units and so on. But, to be clear, it was not that white West Indian colonists were opposed to the arming of enslaved or indeed free people of African descent in all circumstances. Indeed, opponents of the West India regiments who recognised that there was a military need for more boots on the ground set much store by the use of irregular units in Ranger Corps, so-called black shot. Slave soldiers raised in military emergencies, which had been the kind of more typical pattern in the 18th and 17th centuries. These soldiers, their proponents argued, were bound by ties of paternalism. They were supposedly loyal to the particular master who armed and often personally led them. Some might be rewarded with manumission and subsequently serve in militias, while others were returned to the usual roles when the emergency was over. With the West India regiments, however, the fear 
was that well-armed, trained troops that were somehow beyond local control, because ultimately they answered to horse guards, to the imperial government, and their officers were non-locals, were non-white Creoles, although some were French Creoles. These posed an existential threat to white Creole society. They were nothing more than would-be brigands and potential mutineers. This then was the challenge facing proponents, supporters and officers commanding the regiments. These men were fully aware of the opprobrium, fear and hatred that their men attracted, something they often complained about in correspondence with uh, horse guards with the war office, where they reported slights and insults, tensions with local militias and the rumours deliberately spread, they argued, by critics of the regiments. One commanding officer wrote of the prejudice and rancor against this corps, particularly among those who are at this moment glad to have every opportunity to embarrass the measures of His Majesty's government. In response, commanding officers fought hard to create a positive image of the troops. And, you know, without being uh, anachronistic, there is a kind of info war going on here about these men, about their status. They made deliberate public interventions in an effort to demonstrate the fidelity and steadfastness of their men, something which did earn them great popularity amongst white colonists. So, for example, general orders were often used to respond to or preempt criticisms of the regiments. So general orders are issued by a local or a regional commander-in-chief, and essentially they're orders for an entire unit. They're read out in public to the whole unit, and they're usually printed in the, the local Royal Gazette, and then circulated in newspapers as well. So they're essentially a way of the commanding officer speaking to the men, but at the same time making a broader argument to the, the, the kind of reading public. And these could be used to try and essentially sort of just assert just how loyal and reliable the men were. Commanders also sought to send a message about their confidence in the troops by using them in high-profile public roles. So, for example, we find them um, used as honour guards when new uh, governors or lieutenant governors arrive. They guard the residences, again, of kind of um, high-ranking colonial officials, including the commanders themselves. And, they, so, and the officers also, the commanding officers will also make awards uh, and, and monetary awards to their men, again, to demonstrate their confidence. <coughs> Such actions arose partly from the understandable loyalty of commanders to their men, but were also part of a broader contest over the image of the West India soldier as they sought to challenge local attitudes and opinions. But support from local command, from, from commanding officers also arose from concerns among them about the effects that public hostility amongst colonists had, was having on the troops themselves. For example, a commander in Jamaica wrote that, quote, nothing in my opinion is so likely to rouse my men's discontent at present as the prejudice which so universally prevails against them in this island and the apparent distrust of them which it must necessarily occasion. So the commanders were also, uh, in a sense, trying to shore up uh, the image of the regiment whilst at the same time counter its potentially baneful effects on the troops themselves. It was particularly vital in the aftermath of mutinies for the image of the West India Regiment soldiers to be defended. So after the 1808 mutiny at Fort Augusta, Jamaica, General Vallette, the commanding officer, was at pains to stress the, quote, loyal and proper feelings and spirit shown by the body of the regiment who attacked the mutineers and helped to put it down. Similarly, his successor, Major General Hugh Carmichael, stressed that the mutiny had involved only 33 recruits out of a regiment with an effective strength of nearly 1,000. 
and he publicly commended the vast majority of his men for defending their officers. And in fact, he, um, he says that I would like to reward, reward you all, that's not practical, and instead he singles out the men who were wounded in putting down the mutiny again to, you know, as a mark of their faithful service with at least one eye on broader public opinion. And Carmichael actually, in particular, was a very um, uh, active defender of the regiments. Um, he argued that their, their, the, the, the actions of the majority furnished a most convincing proof that the mind of a soldier of whatever country or colour, once formed and instructed, can never be transformed to that of traitor or assassin. And essentially arguing that um, you know, properly trained West India Regiment soldiers, which his men were, were just as reliable as anyone else. They were not mutineers or potential brigands. And his staunch support for his men uh, was carried out very much in the public and resulted in a series of serious clashes and tensions with the local plantocracy, particularly the Jamaican Assembly. And eventually Carmichael was dragged out of Jamaica and sent to a more low-profile uh, uh, posting. And this spoke to the intensity of the ideological struggle over the image of the West India Regiment soldier. Now, if we take all these efforts by supporters and commanding officers to promote the regiment, a particular image begins to emerge. This is the image of the soldier as, quote, the most orderly, clean and attentive man. Or, as another would put it, the West India Regiment soldier is docile, patient, brave and faithful. Orderly, clean, attentive, docile, patient, brave and faithful. And these qualities comprise a particular figure that I term the steady soldier. The steady soldier. And the steady soldier is the counterpart to the, you know, the brigand, the, the mutinous, uh, uh, disloyal, dangerous figure, the steady soldier. Now, I, evidence for the success of this reimagining of the West India regiments, including their increasing acceptance amongst colonists, can be seen in the course of the early 19th centuries. So, if we turn to the 1830s, we begin to see the emergence of far more positive and reflective pieces on the regiments in the colonial press. Early 19th century, the colonial press is full of any little incident where there might be a, a disagreement, a fight, an argument between involving a West Indian regiment soldier and someone else. Suddenly it's reported as like, this is you know, you know, shocking news, this is you know, terrifying. By the 1830s, we see the appearance across newspapers across the Caribbean of man, much more matter-of-fact accounts of the history of the regiments that just simply describe where the regiments came from, where they served, just, just far calmer. In the same decade, we see even stronger evidence, I think, of a shift in opinion. And this relates to the public response in the colonial press, at least, to the third and final mutiny that occurs amongst the regiments in the Caribbean. And this is the one that occurs in Trinidad amongst the 1st West India Regiment in 1837. The response in the press was different from what happened in the early 19th century. Yes, this was described as one of the most serious alarms which the inhabitants have, uh, have encountered, but the coverage focused on the particular nature of the perpetrators, especially the leader of the mutiny, an African man called Daga, who'd been given the name Donald Stewart, a man described as just the sort of savage, warlike and depredatory 
uh, man that a, a chief uh, that it would be selected for an African chieftain. His 300 followers, the mutant, main mutineers, were described as savages, and a contrast is drawn between Daga and his savages on the one hand, and the old soldiers who were present at the time of the mutiny, in particular barracks in, Trin in Trinidad, who, despite being outnumbered by 10 to 1, despite having other arms taken from them, continued to remain steady and firm to their duty. So you get a much more nuanced account of the mutiny, which is simply not present uh, in the earlier period. And I would suggest that these old soldiers, as the press repeatedly called them, are a kind of embodiment of the figure of the steady soldier that I've described, which even West Indian colonists could have some confidence. Coming 14 years after the last major regional event that, that involving the regiments, which was their role in putting down the 1823 Demerara slave revolt, revolt, and also following the beginning of formal emancipation in the Caribbean, there seems to have been a shift in the representation of the West India Regiment rank and file, in that the 1830 mutiny was not read as symptomatic of the problematic status of black soldiers in general, but rather as indicating the dangers of a particular recruitment policy, that is the wholesale importation of uncivilised Africans into the regiments in, in one go. And there is in fact an, a change of policy as a result. Indeed, colonial office officials seemed confident that although some would make an argument against the regiments, it was actually the, it was easy to defend the regiments and actually all they had to do was alter the policy of recruitment. And I think this shift can also be attributed to the increasing creolisation of the African descent population in general, such that Daga and his men are now kind of outliers within a much more creolised population. Also, of course, just sort of gesturing forward, the contrast that's drawn around the 1837 mutiny between the African savage mutineer on the one hand and the old soldier on the other also prefigures what Patrick Brantlinger, you know, many, many years ago called the, the, the myth of the, of the dark continent. This is the late 1830s, beginning of the 1840s, we're seeing that darkening of Africa within the Victorian mind, right, which is rather different from how, for example, abolitionists had thought of Africa in much more romantic terms earlier in the century. There's also a visual counterpart to this imagining of the steady soldier. Now, as I said before, there are relatively few images of the West India Regiment from the first half of the 19th century. There are, there's this surviving uh, colour, which is an infantry flag uh, held by the National Army Museum of the 4th West India Regiment. Um, but in terms of more widely circulating images go, there are relatively few. And the earliest I've found is here. So this is uh, Charles de Bosset's uh, A View of the British Army on the Present Establishment from 1803. As far as I know, this is the earliest image of a West India Regiment soldier, visual image. It's a diagram, and it's intended to show you the details of the uniform of every military unit then on the British establishment, cavalry, artillery, and all the infantry regiments. Um, the Bosse was a, a lieutenant in a, a Swiss unit which was then on the British service. And as you can see, it includes a series of uh, groups of figures, a series of tableau. Um, but I think what's interesting is that whereas the first three, so top left, top right and bottom left, we have figures, whether they're on horseback or not, standing in rather, relatively relaxed postures, in discussion perhaps over a military matter or something else. The one involving the West India Regiment soldier is a bit different.
we have here at the centre of the image a soldier from, the, from a West India regiment standing to attention as the infantry officer to his left, finger raised, a rather stern expression, I think, on his face, gives an order or perhaps even issues a reprimand. Meanwhile, the black soldier stands passively and mutely, his tropical West Indian otherness conveyed, of course, by a palm tree. And it's worth saying that there are no other type of topographical features. I mean, there's like, there's a tent here, but everything else is just rather generic. But here we have a palm tree. This exchange is at the heart of the image. And slightly behind the infantry officer and to one side, of course, is another non-English figure, a Highland infantryman. Now, according to Heather Street Salter, Highlanders, which had, of course had long been feared within the English imagination, had by this point proved themselves, particularly in the Seven Years' War, and indeed by the early 19th century, the Napoleonic Wars, are beginning to be established as kind of iconic military figures uh, uh, within the British military imperial imagination. The Highlander needs no uh, admonishment and also stares rather severely at the West India Regiment soldier. Now this posture, standing, ready for inspection, is one that recurs. Take, for example, the image of a private from the 5th West India Regiment from Charles Hamilton Smith's costume of the Army of the British Empire according to latest regulations of 1815. The soldier is standing um, on a piece of land, a bay. This is probably intended to be Jamaica Bay. It's this, I mean, because the 5th at the time was based in Fort Augusta. Um, there are two other soldiers to his rear. Of uh, God, there's another palm tree, of course. Um, and what's striking is not only, again, as I say, the fact that we have another soldier not standing to attention in this case. This particular uh, 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 posture is um, support arms while standing at ease, which is one of the um, uh, postures a soldier would be ordered to take if he was undergoing a lengthy inspection, apparently, according to uh, contemporary uh, uh, military instructions. But what's, what's interesting, again, is the contrast between this image and other images from the same, uh, from Smith's other, uh, the rest of the um, uh, regulations. Again, we have figures, foot guards, Highlanders, either men relaxed in conversation, perhaps over serious military matters, or you know, advancing rapidly towards an enemy. And that includes even other uh, non-European figures. So these Indian sepoys, again, are portrayed in a kind of relaxed posture, discussing some matter. The contrast, I think, with this, and this is the only image that's doing this in the whole collection, standing to attention, or sorry, standing ready for inspection, rather to attention, I think is an interesting one. And it's also one that recurs in other images from this period. This is from the uh, late 1830s, I think. What we don't find in, in the visual archive from this period are images of the West India Regiment in action. There is one exception I've come across so far. This is a watercolour from 1810 by John Eckstein, which shows the capture of uh, one of a, a series of islands uh, between Martinique and Guadeloupe, uh, which was undertaken by the 3rd and 5th, or by companies from the 3rd and 8th, rather, West India Regiment, uh, and the soldiers were seen to distinguish themselves. But this is a watercolour, and there's no evidence that this was, would have circulated widely at all, would have been known at all. This is much more typical. A coloured woodcut published by G. Thompson in June 1809, which depicts the capture of Martinique, a widely celebrated event in Britain, and there's evidence that this was quite a widely uh, circulating uh, uh, engraving. 
The 1st West India Regiment played a crucial role in this invasion, and like most of the regiments that participated, was awarded battle honours. Indeed, the general orders that were issued during the campaign noted that, that, that um, commended the hard and severe work un that was performed by the 1st West India Regiment, work that European soldiers could not undergo due to the climate. And yet, they're not here, they're not represented. Indeed, it's not until the second half of the 19th century that we find published visual images of West India Regiment soldiers in action. These are the soldiers in the remodelled Zouave-style uniform, which was adopted in 1858, which brought new attention to the regiment. And this also reflects, as does the general increase in visual material, the expansion of the Victorian illustrated press, as well as the fact that Britain's fighting colonial wars all over the place at this time. But even in the second half of the, late, of the, second half of the 19th century, this kind of image is rather unusual. And it's this kind of thing that's far, far more typical. Men standing waiting for inspection, either by figures who are shown or presumably by us. The splendid Zouave-style uniform may have to some extent caught the public's imagination, but there seems to be a reluctance, perhaps even unease, in depicting these men in action. And this was the visual context in which the Dessange painting was produced, of course, and as I've suggested earlier on, that is also a rather uh, interesting representation in terms of his portrayal of Hodge. Now these visual images, I think, help to clarify the key features of the figure of the West India Regiment soldier as it was imagined by its supporters, by its proponents in the early 19th century. In other words, what I've called the steady soldier. And there are three things I want to pull out. The tropical otherness of this figure. While recognisably a British infantryman and represented as such, we are always reminded of where the soldiers come from and indeed why they were, why they were employed in the Caribbean. One of the arguments that's made for why West India regiments need to be raised is because of the vulnerability of European troops to the local disease environments and the lower vulnerability of units of men of African descent. This is a key military rationale. And this tropical otherness is constantly reminded with the palm tree, inevitably, and, I don't know, perhaps is also meant to reassure us that these soldiers uh, know their place, I don't know. The second thing is passivity. The soldiers appear well turned out and reliable for sure, but they're not represented in action. And, and, it's, you know, and it's not like this is like the way in which soldiers are represented at this time. As I've suggested, this is, this is unusual. And I don't know, I, there's something I, I'm, I'm thinking about more, I'm interested to see what people think, but it strikes me that there's a kind of a deliberate distancing of the West India Regiment from these kinds of images. This is um, Captain Leonard Parkinson of the Maroons, this is from the 1795 Trelawney Tarn, and this is a kind of, you know, an image of, um, this is a European, this is you know, a European image of course, and imagining, but it's of a, a, an athletic, there's a, there's, you know, it's, this is an image in movement, this is a figure who's doing something, and I don't know, it strikes me that there's almost a, the contrast is, is so stark. It's almost as if there's an effort to deliberately, as I say, distance these regiments from the brigands that were so feared. And then thirdly, this brings me to my final point, is that these soldiers are, being, are always portrayed as ready for inspection. The case that's being made, and in a sense this also recurs in that, 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 you know, that, that line that the soldier is orderly, clean, attentive, docile, patient, brave and faithful 
The case that's being made seems to be one that's based on their manner, their posture, their bearing and their appearance. And crucially, this is something that has to be affirmed by us. They're always being portrayed, not doing things, but waiting for us to assess. We're not being shown their military value, but we're being invited to, uh, to assess it. And I think as such, these images capture the somewhat ambivalent status of the West India Regiment soldier in the British Imperial military imagination of the long 19th century. A martial figure for sure, but one that was rarely depicted in action and one that had to be constantly scrutinised and inspected. This brings me then back to Desange and to my conclusions. I've stressed, and I've, I've argued rather, that Hodge is a rather marginal figure in a painting supposedly intended to mark his individual valour. And of course, this is compounded by his posture, kneeling while he looks up to Darcy, face in profile. Now, as I suggest when I, I mentioned that this painting ends up being owned by Darcy, it's probably the case that Dessange was either working from a likeness, maybe from Darcy himself, you know, clearly it's a painting for Darcy. He, he ne Dessange never met Hodge. There were evidence he met Hodge or had a likeness of Hodge, and that's partly why we just go for the much more generic face in profile. Okay, so practical reasons. However, I don't think it goes too far to note that Hodge's posture is remarkably redolent of the famous abolitionist icon, <laughs> which first appeared in the Josiah Wedgwood Anti-Slavery Medallion of 1787 with its image of, quote, an African in chains in supplicating posture. The abolitionist campaign in the Caribbean was long finished by the time of the Dessange painting, but this very much remained the way in which rather, self compl rather complacent mid-Victorians imagined their relationship to slavery, uh, to uh, Africa, to people of African descent, and so on. This figure is the visual expression of another idea of, uh, 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 idea of African people, which Catherine Hall and others have described as the good Negro. You know, that's the kind of the good Negro. A figure that implores the viewer for mercy, begs for the chains to be broken, and only haltingly suggests their qualified equality. Am I not a man and brother? Now, you know, we're all very familiar with kind of critiques of this image around 2007. Anyone who's read anything by Marcus Wood, I'm not, you know, I presume everyone's aware of the kind of the, the rather circumscribed uh, nature of this image and how it's portraying people of African descent. Now, the Dessange painting is the only one that I know that I think you know, makes that deliberately otherwise the link. But I do think beyond that, there are parallels between this figure and this figure, which are uh, contemporary or more contemporary, between the quote good Negro and the quote the steady soldier. Both sought to contest colonial representations of the black subject in terms of its violent savagery or childlike inadequacy, but did so, but did so in ways that rendered them mute or limited to a nothing more than a plaintive plea. In both cases, the value of the figure is left for the white, presumably white viewer to judge and possibly find wanting. Similarly, both figures are passive, waiting to be freed or ready for inspection. As such, both figures serve to produce new racist stereotypes while challenging others. Now, in suggesting parallels between the good Negro and the steady soldier, I'm not arguing that supporters of the regiment were abolitionists or that support for the West India Regiment and abolitionism were the same thing. Take, for example, Captain Marcus Rainsford of the 3rd West India Regiment. 
who was sent to Sandoman to recruit enslaved men. Now, as many people will know, his historical account of the Black Empire of Haiti of 1805 played an important role in providing a relatively positive image of Haiti's revolutionaries, especially Toussaint. But this did not mean he was an abolitionist. Paul Youngquist and Gregory Piero put it this way, quote, Probably as a result of mustering black recruits for much of his career, Rainsford gained an enormous respect for the way they served on the field and lived at home. That in no way meant he advocated their freedom. His position was that of a father. Rainsford's paternalism led him to conclude that he knew what was best, both for the planters and for the enslaved Africans. Now, Youngquist and Piero want to argue that Rainsford was not anti-slavery. But the way they describe his opinion opposed knowing what's best for planters and enslaved people is pretty much standard paternalist abolitionism. Clearly opposed to planters, slaveholders, but also with very set, set a view of what the agency of enslaved people should be. And this brings me to three final points. That there are similarities between the good Negro and the steady soldier is not surprising. Both contested deeply racist and negative images of men of African descent associated particularly with the defense of slavery. Yet historians, art historians, have failed to consider the steady soldier within the context of the war of representation of slavery. One of the things I've tried to do is place it there. Secondly, linked to this, while we're familiar with the kind of secular and religious models that abolitionists had for freedom, that freedom meant being a good Christian, that freedom meant being a dutiful wage labourer, I think the idea that military service might also be a model for freedom, with no mention, of course, of the incredible amounts of violence that military service is always based on, I think is another, I think we need to throw that into the mix when we think about how people who were opposed to slavery imagined what freedom might be. Thirdly, in seeking to establish a positive image of the West India Regiment soldiers, their proponents presented a rather ambivalent, passive martial figure, something that continued to constrain their representation, as we've seen in Dessange, and perhaps helps to explain why they were so marginal to Victorian military imperial discourse more broadly. I'll leave it there. Thanks. <laughs>